Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Last month, tobacco control activists and public health professionals from across the country met for the 2023 National Conference on Tobacco and Vaping. The conference is the premier event for tobacco control in Canada. Organized by the Ontario and Canadian Public Health Associations and supported financially by platinum sponsors Johnson & Johnson and Health Canada, the event is billed as one of the few where academia, advocates, policymakers, and frontline practitioners come together to learn and strategize on current issues facing those who work in tobacco and vaping control. Oh my, does this event provide a fair and balanced perspective on vaping and an open door to safer nicotine advocates? Joining us today is someone who knows the answer to these questions, Dr. John Oysten, retired anesthesiologist and former associate professor at the University of Toronto and dedicated supporter of vaping as a tool for harm reduction. Dr. Oyston, thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, thank you. You're very welcome. So the 2023 National Conference on Tobacco and Vaping, this year the conference is titled Charting the Course to Less Than 5% by 2035, Building on Progress Towards New Gains. So Dr. Oyston, were you able to attend? Not in real time, no. Um, I was very excited to attend because I thought it was going to be a very important conference. I thought it was going to be very interesting. It came at a crucial time in the history of vaping in Canada. Um, but at the night before the conference, I got an email saying that they had been forced to decline my attendance because I have associations with the tobacco and vaping industry. However, and somewhat ironically, the sessions were pre-recorded. -record, were and afterwards, I was able to gain access to it because a friend who actually works full-time for a tobacco company uh, gave me his password and allowed me to log on. So you were able to get in and at least view the conference? Yes, I wasn't able to participate in any way in real time or join any of the online chats, but I was able to review the presentations that had, that had been made. So now correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't you one of those who are on the front lines in the battle to help people quit smoking? Um, I would like to think that, but unfortunately, part of the work that I've done has been funded by the tobacco and vaping industry. So you know, I've written, a, for example, an affidavit for the Canadian Vaping Association on the importance of flavors. I've made presentations to physicians about safer nicotine products, some of which were funded by PMI. Uh, I've done research with uh, Ricardo Pelosa that was funded by the Physicians for a Smoke-Free World. So I don't dispute the fact that I have connections, but I've been doing good work that happens to be funded by the tobacco or vaping industry because this is an organization that's interested in funding this work. Just to make sure people understand what happened here, you paid for your registration in December of 2022, and it was the very day before the conference was set to start this February 8th that you were informed by the organizers, the Ontario Public Health Association, that you were not allowed or welcome. Yes, and I was actually expecting this because when I registered, there was a wording on the registration that had already been used the previous two years by the Ottawa Model for Smoking Cessation for their annual conference on smoking cessation, in which as part of the registration process, there was a box saying, uh, I have no no connections to the tobacco or vaping industry. And so I don't tick that box because I do have those connections. Um, and the Ottawa Model for Smoking Station did the same thing. They took my money and they registered me. And then the night before the conference, they cancelled the registration after it was too late for anybody else to 
to to, to rejoin the conference. Uh, I couldn't rejoin in a false name because the registration was now closed. So there was the same wording in the sign up for this conference. And so I, I almost expected the same thing to happen. And I really wasn't surprised. It's the same people working in the same mechanism. Let's take a look actually at that language. And this again is from the Ontario Public Health Association. They sent you this email canceling your attendance. Marissa Lustry from OPHA told you that, quote, as is customary with the norms of working in the tobacco control and vaping health sector, the conference does not allow those with ties to tobacco or vaping industry to attend. As we were reviewing your registration, we noticed that you were unable to declare that you are free from any connections to the tobacco or vaping industries. While we thank you for your interest in the conference, we are unable to allow you to attend the conference. Dr. Royston, what does it mean, ties and connections? Uh, well, as I said, and I, I put this up on my website, I have a blog that says, well, I said, sorry, not sorry, that I have spoken about issues related to tobacco and vaping. I've done research on it. I've written papers on it. I've written an affidavit on it. And in some cases, these were funded by the tobacco and vaping industry. So the Canadian Vaping Association hired me to write an affidavit on the importance of flavors to support a legal case that they were involved in. Uh, Ricardo Pelosa wanted me to be a medical assessor in Canada for a long-term study on the health effects of vaping. That was funded by uh, the Foundation for Smoke-Free World. Um, and I've done some work talking to physicians about safer nicotine products, which has been funded by PMI, which is a tobacco company. So the work I've done, I'm proud of. I think it was valuable work. It was work that needed to be done. But because it was done in association with and paid for by tobacco and vaping companies, I, it seems now that I'm banned, not only from speaking at these conferences, which is perhaps fair, but even from attending them and maybe learning stuff, maybe educating myself, maybe exposing myself to alternative viewpoints, um, and also giving me the chance perhaps to talk about my point of view to other people. Uh, and this just seems a, a crazy and unnecessary infringement on free speech. And when they say that they were obliged to turn down my application to attend, they're not obliged. That was a decision that they made. Uh, they could have made that decision instantly as soon as I had tried to apply. Uh, but for their own reasons, they chose to take my money, sit on it for several months, and then only return the money to me the day before the conference or the night before the conference. Yeah, which is just, I mean, that's just being rude. So let me ask you, does this not exclude almost everyone involved in advocating for safer nicotine products in Canada? Um, certainly, as far as the Ottawa Model for Smoking Cessation Conference is concerned, it excludes people who run vape shops. A colleague of mine who runs a vape shop was banned from attending the Ottawa Model for Smoking Cessation. And this is just crazy. You know, like she is an ex-smoker and she helps other people quit smoking. And she wanted to learn more about how to do that better. So she wanted to attend the conference. And she isn't allowed to simply because she runs a vape shop. I think that's absolutely crazy. So how does this make you feel about the event? Well, it does make you a little bit suspicious. And it, it, it's interesting that they're prepared to accept Johnson & Johnson as a platinum sponsor when Johnson & Johnson is marketing a product in this field. They market you know, Nicorette and Nicoderm which are relatively ineffective smoking cessation medications that are in direct contract, direct um, opposition to or competition with uh, vaping and other safer forms of nicotine. So they're allowing bias from a pharmaceutical company, but they're not allowing somebody who has taken money from 
PMI or from from a vaping organization. Uh, so that seems to be unfair. If you're going to not allow corporate influence, then that should that should go both ways. And let's take a look here. This is the conference program. We showed just the uh, title there, title page earlier. And as we get down, it's immediate. It's page three of this highly produced conference program. And here you are. Thank you to our sponsors. The platinum level sponsors are Johnson and Johnson and Health Canada. So they they are the ones that funded this. How could there not be some form of conflict of interest with big pharma? But that clearly doesn't seem to be an issue for them. And it's especially interesting because one of the presenters was David Hammond, and he was looking at the effectiveness of vaping at a community level for smoking cessation. And the point he made is that quitting late rates in Canada have not changed since vaping became popular. All that has changed is that people are using vaping as a way to quit smoking instead of medical nicotine replacement products. So he was actually saying that vaping is now acting as a substitute for the products that are sold by Johnson & Johnson that are sponsoring the conference. So that makes it a very blatant conflict of interest. Tell us about Cam H, Dr. Oyston. We don't talk often enough about that group, but they are they do play a crucial role, don't they? Yes, and it's it's a little bit interesting to see where they are. So Cam H is the Canadian Addictions and Mental Health Institution. So it's a very well respected institution. It's then centered in downtown Toronto. And it does work on all sorts of addictions, but it includes a nicotine dependency clinic. And they recently came out with some uh, what they call less harmful nicotine use guidelines, which is actually fairly reasonable about vaping. It says things like switching completely from cigarette smoking to vaping will decrease harm to your health. It also says that it may be justifiable to vape long term if that's what's needed to prevent you relapsing into cigarette use. Other things it's a little bit more dubious about. It doesn't think that there's any room for heat not burn or heated tobacco products. Um, and the whole guidelines, if you read them, it looks like it was very clearly written by a committee because it says some things that are quite supportive about vaping in some places and is more negative in others. But on the whole, it's actually uh, giving physicians who want to recommend vaping as a method to help people quit a certain amount of cover because it does offer some like some safety guidelines, tells you things like you know, keep your nicotine away from children, things like that, that are um, valid safety guidelines. And it does offer at least some support for the idea that uh, vaping may be a way to get off cigarettes. But the interesting thing is one of the speakers at the conference was Dr. Peter Selby, and so he was talking about the role that vaping may play in cigarette smoking. And he gave us two reasons why you might not want to do that. The Evali episode... Uh, which you know, clearly had nothing to do with legal nicotine vapes, and the idea that vapes may explode. And, okay, there have been isolated incidences where vapes have exploded, but you'd have to compare that with the risk of uh, smoking in bed and burning your house down, or a discarded fire, a cigarette butt you know, setting a whole forest on fire and injuring other people in the fire. So these are very weak reasons not to encourage people to vape as an alternative to cigarette smoking. And I was quite disappointed that he would raise these things, which I think are very minor points, in one case, totally irrelevant. So the two most important events that bring together public health policymakers and frontline workers in Canada excludes the most knowledgeable and qualified people when it comes to safer nicotine products. Do I have this correct? Um, I'm not sure if you're flattering me there, but, <laughs> um, but it's an event for the establishment 
to pat itself on the back, to talk to other people in the establishment. It's not an event for people with alternative viewpoints, people who are um, prepared to be critical about things, people who don't toe the party line, that's for sure. And, you know, to the example that you just mentioned, you weren't there and others aren't there to likely, you know, put their hand up and maybe potentially provide some feedback on, say, another popcorn lung or another e-valley or another exploding e-cigarette claim. There's nobody there to say, hey, doctor, what about this? That's not really something that happens anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And it was fascinating because one of the other speakers was Bob Schwartz from the Ontario Tobacco Research Unit. And he said that teenage smoking rates in Canada are declining faster than he can explain. And he showed all the graphs, showed all the data, and he said, this is not explicable by anything that public health is doing. And he said, well, maybe there's some sort of like jump shift, maybe there's some sort of turning point here. He then showed a graph that showed that vaping was increasing at exactly the time when cigarette smoking amongst teens was decreasing. And he wasn't prepared to even consider or put forward us as a hypothesis or as a possibility that these two things were related to each other. You have an unexplained decrease in cigarette smoking. At the same time, there's an increase in the use of something which is actually an effective substitute for cigarette smoking. And now the fact that these things are happening more or less at the same time and the two graphs, you know, one goes up as the other graph goes down, that doesn't necessarily prove anything. But it's a hypothesis, which as a scientific researcher, he should at least raise and he should be prepared to consider. And I wish I had been there to say, hang on a second. Yeah, why are you not thinking that is there not a possibility that this decrease in teen smoking is actually related to the increase in teen vaping and that vaping is acting as a substitute for cigarette smoking? And that's perhaps something we should applaud because the vaping is not going to kill people in the way that cigarettes kill people. But... I wasn't there, so he was allowed to make those statements and nobody challenged him. And I think that's unfortunate. So I guess that's one of the benefits of the tactic of banning tobacco harm reduction advocates from attending these professional conferences. Well, it's an advantage for, for Rob Schwartz, but I, I don't see that it's an advantage for the Canadian population. And interestingly, he then followed that up by saying that we have to be concerned about nicotine use generally and that you know we should be... Um, doing what we can to reduce nicotine use without actually saying why that would be an important or relevant goal for public health. So would you say then that there might be some mission creep going on within public health on this issue? In terms of what Rob Schwartz was saying, absolutely and definitely, that was mission creep, pure and simple. And you know, maybe if you run the Ontario Tobacco Research Unit, you have to be concerned about your long-term future and the long-term future of your organization and your employees. Because at the moment, cigarette smoking in teenagers in Canada is so low that in some cases, Health Canada isn't even prepared to put a number on it anymore. They say they can find so few people in the teenage years who smoke that they can't actually produce a realistic and scientifically valid uh, figure for the percentage of smokers in teenagers. Is it fair to say, Dr. Oyston, that at a conference like this and others, there seems to be a movement afoot that is demonizing nicotine and, and trying to put all the kind of the blame on nicotine uh, with regards to some of the negative health effects? I don't think people are lying too much. I think they're concerned about teenage use of nicotine. And you know, maybe that's not an unreasonable thing to be concerned about. But 
it does seem that they are seeing vaping only as a threat and not as an opportunity. They're not seeing an upside to it. But let's be clear, since 2016, we've been hearing over and over and over again that nicotine harms developing brains, essentially meaning that if you're 25 and under, if you use nicotine, you risk brain damage. That's not really an area of expertise for myself, but from what I understand, this is all based on research in rodents, and there's very little evidence that it's actually true for humans. Uh, the other thing you have to consider in the 1960s, about 50% of people were using cigarettes and therefore exposing themselves to high amounts of nicotine. So I don't know if there's any evidence that everybody who was living through the 1960s has brain damage. Dr. Royston, so we discussed potential conflicts of interest when it comes to Big Pharma, Johnson & Johnson, being a sponsor of this event. Well, let's take a quick look here. One of their products, Nicorette Mouse Spray, have got a two-page, four-color spread in the program in the program for this conference. And this is nicotine. So if nicotine is bad, and if nicotine is harmful, why is it that public health professionals in Canada don't have a problem with Nicorette sponsoring their event? It's interesting, isn't it? And I almost wonder that when people talk about nicotine replacement therapy, do they actually think that they're replacing nicotine with something else? Because they don't seem to understand that nicotine is nicotine. And if they're prescribing nicorette or nicotine gum or whatever, they're actually prescribing nicotine. So you know, maybe nicotine gum should come with a health warning saying, you know, this product contains nicotine, which is highly addictive. Well, that's right. I'm wondering why the public health professionals here didn't insist that Johnson & Johnson put a warning on this ad that says nicotine can harm developing brains. How come that's not on there? That's a good question. Okay. <laughs> well, it just, uh, hypocrisy knows no bounds sometimes when it comes to public health. Dr. Royston, you mentioned earlier that this is a critical time for vaping in Canada, making exclusion from these kinds of conferences all the more, I would use the word pernicious. Um, what did you mean by it being a crucial time in Canada? First of all, just to get the timeline, I think it was May 2018, we had the Tobacco and Vaping Products Act, and that made nicotine vaping legal in Canada. So that was a big thing. And at that stage, there was a sort of balanced approach. We want this to be available to adult smokers, but we don't want teenagers to use it. And then came along the whole dual epidemic of teenage vaping, and there was a huge hammering of you know, vaping as something that's you know, killing our youth and is going to lead to a, an you know, a youthful addiction to nicotine and increase in cigarette smoking. And that is beginning to fade down. And at the same time, Canada made an obligation. Health Canada said that they wanted to reach a tobacco endgame, which is 5% smoking rates by 2035. And for several years, they made that claim that this was their goal, but they didn't talk at all about how they were going to get to it. And so one of the purposes of this conference was to talk to the ways that they're going to get this to this goal and to come up with some plan of actually achieving it. So from that point of view, it was very important. Also, it appears that Health Canada's view on vaping is actually changing. So at the beginning of this conference, when the press releases leading up to it, Carolyn Bennett, who's the Associate Minister of Health and the Minister for Addictions and, and Mental Health, uh, said publicly, vaping is safer than cigarette smoking. Vaping is a way to help smokers quit smoking. 
So that's coming you know, right from the top, from the minister. And in the conference, um, Sonia Johnston, who's the Director General of the Tobacco Control Directive, she said the same thing. So there's some recognition from the very top that there is a role for vaping and helping people to quit smoking and as a safe alternative. The other thing is that Health Canada had been proposing a flavour ban for vapes, which as a national flavour ban would pretty much wipe out the vape shop industry. And that has completely stalled and it doesn't seem to be going ahead. They're not admitting that they've changed their mind. They're not admitting that they got a whole pile of people suggesting that the whole concept was wrong-headed and based on you know, wrong statistics and wrong information. But they have just stopped doing that, which is you know, a great relief. Now, the provinces still have bans on flavors in some of the Atlantic provinces, and one is currently proposed in Quebec. But at least at the federal level, they seem to have seen the light and realized that a vape flavor ban is not really going to achieve any of its goals. So it appears that there's a bit of a change in direction. And New Zealand went through a similar thing when they realized that they weren't going to reach their smoke-free Aotearoa goals. They actually started creating a whole new pile of policies and they created some things that were very much more vape-friendly and they were very much more interested in vaping as a way to quit smoking. So there was a very real possibility that at this conference, if things had gone a different way, then the whole public health industry in Canada may have started you know, saying, okay, if we want to reach this 25% 25, 25 by 2035 goal, one of the things we have to look at is how do we improve vaping? How do we make vaping uh, safer? How do we make it more acceptable? How do we encourage doctors to be interested in vaping? Uh, and how can we maximize the use of vaping as a way to get smokers to quit or to switch to a safer alternative. But as far as I can see, that was not a voice that was spoken at the conference or not to any great amount or any great depth. And I don't see that the conference is actually going to change the public perception of vaping or the direction of vaping you know, policy in Canada, which is a shame because it, it should have done it. And if it, they'd had more views from more people, then maybe there would have been an actual debate instead of everybody just presenting one side of the argument and uh, singing to their own choir. If there was, say, more participation from, you know, say, for nicotine advocates, they might be able to have taken that ball that was kind of thrown out there by Health Canada and the minister and run with it, because clearly the federal government has not yet made up their mind to completely change how they communicate on this issue, i.e., you know, putting out TV ads and you know, newspapers online and so forth. Yeah, Health Canada is a black box, right? You can't actually ask people why they did something and they'll explain it to you. So you get little bits of it. My feeling is that they've done such an effective job of demonizing vaping and they've convinced everybody, including the medical profession, that vaping is just horrendously dangerous and that it's, it's ruining our, our youth that now it's very hard politically to say, oh, actually, there are some benefits to vaping and maybe we should encourage some people to vape because the general public, the voters out there are all thinking vaping is really dangerous. And so it's politically dangerous to then start suggesting maybe no, there is a role for vaping and that maybe we don't need to be as tough on vaping as we have been and maybe some of the restrictions are too strong. And maybe we need to redirect some of our policies so that we can use vaping to get smokers to quit. It's the moral panic trap 
they created the moral panic, they pushed the moral panic, and now they want to pull the moral panic back, and they can't. Yeah, they box themselves into a corner. We should be taking the win when we've got it, and we've, and we've got a win, both in Canada and the United States. You know, teenage cigarette smoking is way down, and that doesn't make the headlines of the news, and it, and it really should. I mean, public health should be congratulating themselves, even if it's not even if they didn't achieve the goal, the goal has happened. And teenage smoking is down to historically low levels. And this is an important message that we should be getting out there. But nobody seems interested in telling that story, which is, which is a little bit crazy. It's it's a huge win for something. Uh, now, it might be a win for vaping, it might be a win for public health. But in the end, it's 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 a win for the health of, the, of teenagers. I wonder if maybe the federal excise tax, now that the federal government is in business with the vaping industry. Ooh, why was the federal government allowed to go to that conference? Aren't they in business now with vaping? It's very interesting. And if you talk to people at Health Canada, they're very quick to remind you that taxation policy comes from the Canadian Revenue Agency. It doesn't come from Health Canada. So they claim that they actually don't have very much control over taxes on vaping and cigarette products. And so, and there was a very great conflict of interest because countries are very much concerned about the number of elderly people we have that we're supporting with pensions and with social programs. And if 10% of the population voluntarily decide to do something that means they die 10 years earlier, that's a, a huge win for the public purse. And that's you know, very many fewer pensioners that you have to provide funding for. You mentioned flavor bans. Did you have anything to say about what's going on in Quebec? Um, I've been asked to say things about it. And I, I kind of feel that I've spent, you know, I, a year ago, I, I wrote a blog post and I made a presentation at the GFN and I said everything I had to say about flavor fans. It's it's a zombie idea. It's an idea that is should be dead, but it's still walking around. Um, flavors are maybe the third or fourth most important reason why teenagers choose to vape. Flavors are definitely important for cigarette smokers. If cigarette smokers can switch to non-tobacco flavored vape, they're more likely to quit smoking. The flavor bans aren't going to reduce teen vaping. And in fact, what they have done in some constituencies where they've been done is they've, is they've increased teen cigarette smoking because if vaping isn't fun anymore, you might as well use something else. If you have to use tobacco flavored vape, you might as well use real tobacco. So it's, it, it's, it's very disappointing that we're continuing to fight this battle, which we sort of won at the federal level, but is still going on at the provincial level. Okay, one last issue, Dr. Oyston, with regard to this conference. This is the write-up for the session titled E-Cigarettes and Vaping in Canada. Appears to be one of the top presentations on vaping overall at the conference, and it pushes two major biases. Long-term risks have not been, quote, well, elu well elucidated, and that vaping leads to lung injury, specifically Canada's version of E-Valley, VAPI. I mean, should we take this serious? I mean, this is, this is, that's really bad. It's interesting and they love using this, we don't know the long-term risks as a way to, to beat up on vaping. The fact is that isn't the way medicine works. If I was to invent a new drug or a new surgical procedure, nobody would say, okay, show me 10 years follow-up and then we'll start implementing it in practice. That isn't the way medicine works. So we never know the long-term risks of a new drug or a new surgical procedure at the time that we introduce it. And for example, we still don't know the long-term complications of the COVID vaccine, right? So to say we shouldn't give the COVID vaccine to people because we don't know the long-term risks. If I were to say that, I would be considered a lunatic, right? I'd be considered, you know, I would 
well, it'd be struck off if I still had my medical license. Um, it's an unacceptable thing to say from the public health standpoint. But it's totally reasonable to say we don't know the long-term effects of vaping, so people shouldn't vape. But these things are similar. You know, the, the number of people who've been killed by cigarette smoking and the number of people who've been killed by COVID are about the same. And in each case, we have something that could potentially reduce those deaths. And in each case, we don't know the long-term effects of that. But we have a whole pile of corroborative evidence. You know, we know what the constituents of vape are in the same way that we know what the constituents of the COVID vaccine are. And we can make a reasonable prediction about the relative safety of these products. And yet, for vaping, apparently, we're supposed to know the long-term risks before we do it, even though we're comparing it to the long-term risks of smoking, which we know is a 50% death rate. So it's, you know, it's, it's unfair to make that comparison uh, and to have that expectation that for somehow, you know, we have to know the long-term risks for vaping before we move forward. That, that just isn't the way medicine works. Dr. Oyston, let me ask you, are Canadian doctors and nurses sufficiently educated about the benefits of vaping? Not at all. Uh, in 2019, Health Canada commissioned a survey called the uh, Healthcare Providers' Views and Experience with Smoking Cessation and Alternative Nicotine Products. And that showed an appalling level of ignorance. So, for example, 77% of healthcare practitioners don't consider that switching completely from smoking to a safer nicotine product counts as quitting smoking. 56% uh, of GPs report that they're not knowledgeable about vaping. 53% of respondents said that nicotine vaping was very or extremely harmful. 23% felt that switching from smoking to vaping would make patients worse. 64% of nurses, 50% of pharmacists, and 39% of GPs feel that vaping nicotine is worse than smoking. So that was an appalling level of ignorance. That was 2019. I don't know that anything has changed since then. And that information that was publicly accessible on the Health Canada website has now been removed from the website. And I don't know whether that was an actual decision or whether it was just they routinely move, remove stuff after a certain number of years. Uh, but anyway, that information, I have the written report, but it's no longer available on the website. What could be done to change that? That's a very interesting question. Um, I think you have to go through all levels of medical education, right from what people are taught in in universities and in, in medical school. Um, and you have to have conversations about smoking cessation as part of the teaching of family doctors, of surgeons, of a whole pile of specialists. That has to be part of conferences. And that teaching has to be unbiased. It has to be based on the data. It has to be based on a realistic discussion of what the risks and benefits of the various products are and what their effectiveness is as a method of getting people to quit smoking. Um, and until we do that, then physicians are going to remain ignorant. But at the moment, there doesn't seem to be any interest in, in having that sort of conversation with physicians. Physicians don't seem interested in uh, taking courses on smoking cessation. They think that they've learned all they need to do about vaping from the headlines in the media, and they don't need to go beyond that. I think one of the things that disturbs me the most about this situation is in that same report, it also shows that patients are very reluctant to bring up smoking cessation at all. And it needs to come first from the practitioner. So if the practitioner doesn't know anything about vaping or is biased against vaping, then there really is not a lot of hope. Yeah. And anecdotally, I've heard of people who you know, have talked to their physicians about switching from smoking to vaping and have been told by their doctors not to do it. Um, so there's a practical issue. It's not just a theoretical 
typical thing that you know people do a study and they find this. Uh, anecdotally, I've spoken to several people who said that you know as soon as they talked about vaping with their physician, they were shut down and they were told not to do it. Um, I actually took you were talking about CAMH earlier. I took in 2019 the CAMH uh, course on smoking cessation. And they had somebody in that course who comes in saying, I want to quit smoking. I'm interested in vaping. And in the course, they showed how to turn that around, to deflect people, to discourage them from vaping, and to send them out with a nicotine replacement product, a medical nicotine replacement product. So I don't know if that course has changed since then, but in 2019, that's what CAMH was actually teaching doctors to do for people who wanted to use vaping to quit smoking. So Dr. Royston, COP10 is coming up later this year. It's the 10th session of the Conference of the Parties to the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. By all accounts, COP10 presents a massive threat to vaping as treaty members consider several new regulations, which include a ban on open systems, an effective nicotine cap, and a redefinition of smoke to include vapor, putting vaping in the same category as combustible cigarettes. What do you make of these moves? It's sad and it's bizarre. And it's interesting that people who are opposed to vaping have to misuse the English language. Smoke and vapor are different things. They have different risks, they have different benefits, they have different particle size, different chemical constituency. And to say that one is the same as the other, you know, this is like going through the looking glass. You know, words now mean what I choose them to mean. They don't mean what they actually are. And this seems to have been so prevalent on the vaping issue. You know, Evali was not e-cigarette and vaping associated lung injury. It was lung injury associated with illegal backstreet cannabis products. Uh, there isn't an epidemic of teen vaping. If you read the medical definition of an epidemic, it has to be an increase in the incidence of a disease. Uh, vaping is not a disease. You can't have an epidemic of vaping. You know, and then you talk about vape as a tobacco product. Vape is tobacco free, but you label it as a tobacco product. So it, it, it almost leads you to despair that if you change the actual nature of the language, then it's hard to have a sense of a conversation anymore. You know, it's like people you know, call uh, shale oil and oil sands. You, know, you call the product a different thing depending on which side of the debate you are. Um, so it's, it's, it's unfortunate and it's crazy. And it, it's, it's hard to understand where the WHO thinks it is when it praises India for banning vaping and continuing to sell cigarettes and continuing to allow the use of a whole pile of, of nasty or nicotine products. So I really don't know where the WHO is and, and where it's getting its information from because it, it's not following the science by any means. 